Hello and welcome to Not Another Business Podcast, where we break down business news and cultural events according to rules we've entirely made up. I'm KJ Miller, ex-corporate consultant and current CEO and co-founder of Minted Cosmetics. And I'm Daniela Dektar-McCarthy, ex-corporate lawyer and current general counsel at Ness. And fun fact, KJ and I have been friends since our Harvard acapella days because we are that cool, folks. Disclaimer before we start the show, the views we express today are our own and not those of our companies. Today on the show, we are bringing you a grab bag, a potpourri of flashbacks and judge and juries because it's our show and we do what we want, people. That's exactly right. (laughs) Also, there were just no news stories this week, in my opinion, that I felt like rose to the level of deserving an entire show. So why not just talk about all the myriad of things going on? I mean, celebrities are out here making crazy decisions, so lots of ways that we can judge them. Uh, Mm -hmm. Lots of stories that we've talked about in the past that have some interesting updates, so much to flash back on. It just, it makes sense it makes sense it makes total sense i mean also we've got lives outside of the podcast i don't want that to be the case but we do it's busy so let's let's do grab bags are fun who doesn't love a grab bag exactly let's get into it i'm excited right after our shameless plug all right danny what are you plugging this week i am plugging our patreon That is patreon.com slash NABP, where we give you exclusive content if you subscribe. Just last week, we released our second NABP After Dark episode. The first was given to you for free. The second, gotta go to Patreon to get it. Gotta get it. Gotta pony up that $5. Um, But folks, it's worth it. I I feel like we're really, we're we're giving it all to you in our our After Dark episodes. Once a month, you'll get this extra episode, and uh, also you'll just support us, which like we're the most supportable people. <laughs> <laughs> a worthy cause. Head over to Patreon.com/nabp to subscribe. All right, it is time for our rapid fire flashback Friday. Lots that we're flashing back on, and I'm not going to give you a 60 second time limit this time, Danny. I feel like talk as much or as little as you want about each of these topics. But first up is Instacart. Now, we have not only done an episode on them, we've also done a flashback on them, but now we're coming back for another flashback because they officially IPO'd this week. Um, And while you and I were quite bullish on Instacart, the market was mm, not so much. So on day one of its debut, they did see a hike from, you know, it debuted at, they sold at $30. They saw that price rise on day one of its debut. I think it went all the way up to 42. Um, But by day two, they had a plunge that pretty much wiped out all of its gains from that first day. It was back down to that $30 price. So the market has definitely been, you know, kind of iffy on Instacart. And what I thought was interesting, um, Axios did an article where it pointed out, even in that day one debut where it went up to that, um, you know, $42 or whatever it was, um, if you looked at its last several rounds of fundraising, Mm-hmm. Anyone who came in after its Series C, they still were underwater 
on their investment, even with that day one surge. Um, and so I thought that was interesting because a lot of times um, in the startup world, in the VC world, you think about your IPO as being like the grand exit, like that's mm -hmm. where all the money is made. But in fact, and they raised, I think they went up to series I. So anyone from series D to series I, even in that first day surge, they would not have made money had they sold their shares on the market that day. Um, because yeah, they would have been underwater on their investment at that price. So uh, I just thought that was interesting that the market is, um, it seems not nearly as bullish as you and I were, but what do you think? Yeah, I mean, we talked on our show about how their valuation had been slashed over a couple of years. So it makes sense that there are investors who would be underwater without, you know, a big pop and staying at that pop. But we know that most IPOs have a bubble, right? They spike, they come down. You know, this might, it might not be the case that all IPO gains are washed away within day two of trading. So this might be particularly like meh debut. Mm -hmm. um, but I kind of think time will tell. From what I've seen, all the critics are saying that the reason why no one's excited is just because of how much of Instacart's profitability is based on their ad revenue mm -hmm. and questions about whether that ad revenue is sustainable given kind of flat customer gains and increased competition. And I just think that people are overstating how much of their revenue and profitability is attributed to the ad business. Like, yes, it's a robust ad business, but it's not 80% of their revenue. And we talked about that on a prior show. So I am still saying, let's wait and see what Instacart does. Let's see if the other ways in which it's div diversified its business will give it some staying power and we'll make some of the people who are a little bit more bearish, like change their mind. I mean, will, will the price increase such that investors who came in in later rounds will, you know, see some profit, see some return. I don't know, but I, I do think that there is room for growth here at Instacart. So I'm yeah. not, I'm not totally reversing course yet. I won't admit, I won't admit <laughs> that I'm wrong. <laughs> Um, yeah, you know, I agree with you. And also, I think, you know, to this point around increased competition, to me, Instacart kind of has the position of like a Netflix right now, where it is the name that most people think of when you think of grocery delivery, the same way Netflix is the name you think of when you think of streaming. That doesn't mean that Netflix's position isn't in danger. And that doesn't mean that Instacart's position isn't in danger. But I do think that is a pretty valuable position to have that like that strong name recognition and that first mover advantage um you know the number of markets that we spoke about that they've already infiltrated so i i am still bullish but also i would just wonder if some of this downsizing is really just right sizing i mean mm -hmm. this axios article said that their last raise in 2018 um, they raised $265 million at a $39 billion valuation, whereas um, at their IPO, the valuation, they raised $660 million at a $9.9 billion valuation. Honestly, $10 billion valuation makes more sense to me for a grocery mm -hmm. delivery company, right? Like a $40 billion valuation to me for grocery delivery just sounds a little wild. So, you know, I, right. I understand that some of those investors are a bit underwater, but honestly, they were raising those last few rounds during like one of the frothiest times we've seen. 
in venture capital. And every, everyone is down rounding right now. Literally everybody is down rounding. I just, (laughs) I just think that a $10 billion valuation makes, makes more sense. So no, it's not as sky high, but it is sensical. And I still think it's a sensible business. Agree. All right. What's next? Okay, up next, we are unfortunately talking about Elon Musk uh, because (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if you saw, but his biography came out this week. So Walter Mm -hmm. Isaacson, he is the one who also wrote the Steve Jobs biography. He's written biographies on, um, I think, just a lot of famous people. Um, I'm blanking on who else, but some other famous folks. Uh, (laughs) Steve Jobs, most particularly. And so he has been following Elon Musk around for the last several years. Um, So this was an authorized biography, to be clear. Um, He's been following Musk around, going with him to California and Texas and, and wherever else he went in order to write this book. And there's one chapter in the book where they're talking about Tesla. And what we discover is that Elon Musk used to frequently yell at his engineers because he was furious about the fact that autopilot on his Teslas essentially didn't work and um, frequently almost killed him. Okay, so there's one chapter in particular where Musk learned firsthand that a curve on Interstate 405 caused autopilot thrown off by the road's faded lane lines to steer into an almost hit oncoming traffic. Whenever this happened, because apparently it happened multiple times, Musk would furiously storm into the Tesla office and proceed to chew out his engineers, saying, quote, do something to program this right. (laughs) And the reason I wanted to bring this up is because, as you know, I have said on this very show many times, this man is no genius. So doesn't this sound like the quote of somebody who doesn't know how to program? Do something to program (laughs) this right? Is that is that the technical way to say it, sir? Shouldn't you be helping them do something to program it right? If you're the genius who has brought Tesla to where it is, you're not. So I just wanted to highlight this story and this quote because I think it underscores what I've been saying for months. He's no genius. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. So first off, I would just say... Um, so Walter Isaacson's, his other books, I just remi- looked it up and reminded myself are on like Da Vinci and Einstein, <laughs> right? Mm. In addition to Steve Jobs. So I, I know that there was a lot of discussion around like, okay, so he chose Musk, which in and of itself is like a, an admission that he's one of the geniuses of our times. So even though he's featuring some maybe unflattering quotes and stories, in theory, Walter Isaacson chose this man to write about because he believes that he's a genius of our time. Okay. Oh, I do. I, I do think he believes that. Right, right. <laughs> he does. <laughs> I, okay, I, I'm going to be a little bit more generous with Musk just on this because my understanding is like, he's CEO. He's running a business. He's probably not in the code, you know, much at all and I do think if you're not keeping up with coding like you can get rusty pretty quickly so I, I, I mean is is it the most charismatic or the most like empathetic or the most motivational way to tell his engineers to fix something that's wrong do something to program this right like probably not but I'm not surprised that he himself can't necessarily fix it 
I mean, he's been CEO for a while. He's been running the business. And he's not he's not CTO, he's CEO. Sure, sure, sure. Here's here's the problem I have with this. <clears throat> it's not that I think he should actually be in there writing the code. But mm-hmm. if I'm going to use Minted as an example, and it's the only example I can use because it's the only company I'm, I'm CEO of. <laughs> if I said to my product development team, if we were working on a new lipstick, a new foundation, a new concealer, whatever, and it came back and the pigment load wasn't where I wanted it to be, or the staying coverage, like the long wear wasn't where I wanted sure. it to be. What I wouldn't say to them is do something to fix it. Do something okay. to fix it. No, I'm going to tell you exactly <laughs> what I want done to fix it. I'm going to say, let's increase sure. the pigment load. I'm going to say it needs more dimethicone because the slip isn't right. I'm going to say something that implies that I know what the fuck no. I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> because I do know what the fuck I'm talking about. Yeah, okay? yeah, so, yeah, too, yeah, yeah, yeah. It just yeah. to me, I, I don't know. I just, I don't know. Why no, that's fair. All... This is, it, it's a little Silicon Valley. What's that CEO's name in Silicon Valley? Oh, I don't. I did watch that show, but I don't know. Oh, I yeah, know. I, I know who you're referring to. Yes, it's a little bit like them. Yeah, that. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Like, say something. Just like it. It seems. Yeah, something. It seems like we need to improve our cameras because it's not picking up on faded lines or whatever it is yeah and the thing is i just don't know why we are all so willing to assume that this man is truly actually a genius this person i actually listened to they interviewed walter isaacson on hard fork last week and they asked him about you know everything that went on with Twitter because he's he's been there through all of that. Mm. He had a front row seat to all of these terrible decisions that Elon Musk has made with regards to Twitter. And by the way, this is the only business that he's seen him essentially like take over from day one, right? Because everything mm-hmm. else, he like Tesla had been around for years at that point. Um, the rocket business, SpaceX had been around for years <laughs> at that point. So this is the only one that he really saw him start from day one. And by his own admission, most of what he did, not helpful and not good, and yet was still willing to sit there and call this man a genius. And I just don't understand why. I cannot, I just cannot fathom if any woman, if any person of color did half the shit and said half the shit that he did, that, that yeah. we'd all still be here like, oh, but he, but he did, you know, take over Tesla. <laughs> okay. See, he, he was a rich man with a lot of resources who took over Tesla and didn't fuck it up. Okay, fine. You know, like it just, I don't know. I just, I don't, I don't see it. I don't see it. I don't see any proof that this man is the genius we all want to believe that he is, but maybe I got to read the book. Will you read the book? No, of course I won't read the book. (laughs) (laughs) No, absolutely not. I won't be reading this book. But if someone else wants to read it and send me the cliff notes where it makes it clear why he is a genius, then feel free. All right, listeners. Is that a challenge? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Take it for what you will. Moving on. <laughs> this next flashback is on Airbnb. Now, the, our Airbnb episode was like almost at the beginning of this year, so it's been several months. Um, but I'm sure you saw this recent news because it's in your city, New York City, um, mm-hmm. recently passed some legis- legislation that calls for much stricter regulation around Airbnb and short term rentals. So, the regulations, which have caused quite an uproar, apparently, in New York, 
uh, require hosts be present for stays of less than 30 days with no more than two people staying in a dwelling at a time. Hosts must also register and get approval from the city or both hosts and booking sites may be subject to hefty fines. So given this, apparently what's happened is the number of bookings on Airbnb have really plummeted. Um, The article that I read said listings in New York have dropped 77% from June 4th to September 10th. Um, And also that many Airbnb users with bookings in New York for Christmas are now Mm -hmm. scrambling to find new accommodations because the company has announced they plan to cancel and refund bookings for stays after December 1st, basically because they want to be in keeping with these new regulations for New York. So it sounds like New York is more or less just getting rid of Airbnb. Um, Mm -hmm. what, What is your take on this? Airbnb needs some better government relations people who are focused on New York. (laughs) Um, This is not good for them. That's for sure. And why, why are cities, including New York, so anti? Is it like a safety issue? What's, what's the issue? It's a, my understanding is that cities believe that Airbnbs hike up rent prices, right? Mm. Because so many people take those apartments and then use them for short-term rentals. Oh, so, that's fair. And we have a massive housing crisis. Yeah, and you guys have a massive housing crisis. Oh, so, so this makes sense. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, <laughs> and other cities are, are, are doing it too. And it's funny because we actually didn't talk about that that much. We Our Airbnb episode focused on the fact that a lot of Airbnb renters were no mm-hmm. longer into the service because, the, you know, because the experience had gotten worse over right. the years. Um and also that a lot of people who were renting their spaces um, were not seeing the same demand and so therefore weren't making as much money. But mm-hmm. the third problem that we didn't dig into as much was that a lot of cities don't want Airbnb um, to have as much of a presence because they believe it hikes up rent prices by taking more apartments and houses off of the market. Um, and so obviously less demand or sorry, less supply, more demand, higher prices. So um, that is why New York has made this move. I think what I've seen Airbnb say is that given what small percentage of New York's apartments that are even listed on Airbnb, it would be silly to think that they're realistically having a real effect on the New York housing crisis because it's something like, you know, it's just like a really, really small percentage of apartments that are listed on Airbnb. Um, I think that was their main rebuttal. But is Airbnb the only short-term rental? Like, is Airbnb the only type of rental that's impacted by this legislation? Is it, like, very targeted for Airbnb? Or is there are there other short-term rentals? I don't know, VRBO or... Yeah, what I... What other, I, I don't know. What I've read is Airbnb is, like, the vast majority of the short-term yeah. rentals that are available. So it even though they called it, like the legislation does not, I don't think name check Airbnb. I think right, it's, right. It's very yeah. clear that it's it's targeting Airbnb. Um, um, yeah, all this is logical to me, including the Airbnb rebuttal. But nevertheless, like the housing crisis is so severe that I feel like, yeah, I'm not anti this mm-hmm. in theory. Mm-hmm. Um, in which case, um, I don't know what Airbnb does to. How, what their next move is then. Yeah. 
I don't know either. And what's going to be interesting is I don't think that these restrictions are going to do much in the short term, right? Because what's what's happening right now is that all the people who were previously listing their apartments and rooms and whatever on Airbnb aren't able to do that. But what you really need is for this to deter people from scooping up apartments um, mm-hmm. so that they stay on the market and stay available. And I guess also you need some people who presumably have purchased and or rented out spaces for the sole purpose of Airbnb to then sell them and or, you know, break break their leases um, or get out of their leases. And I, that's just like a longer, that's just a longer process. Like that's not something that happens right. overnight. So I think that and given the small percentage that these apartments make up, I just don't know that this is going to have the intended effect, honestly, that New York mm-hmm. wants it to have. I'm, I'm, I'm skeptical on that um but i am curious to see what airbnb does because i think you know new york obviously is such a tourist attraction and new york hotels are so expensive and so small <laughs> so um i imagine this you know is going to change some people's perspective on whether or not they feel like they even can visit mm. new york and stay in new york oh man these issues are so complex <laughs> It would be a pretty shitty outcome if there's no improvement to rental prices and then there's a down, but a downward impact on revenue from tourists. Right. All right. Well, let's see. We shall see. Well, the other thing to think about is if there are fewer Airbnb options, presumably hotels would then be able to increase their prices. Right. Right. Yeah. Even fewer supply which, yeah right Less which supply. would make it mm-hmm. even harder to visit new york mm-hmm. um i remember one time when i was in business school um i went to new york for a couple nights to see a show and i stayed at an airbnb in brooklyn mm-hmm. um and it was much more reasonable than any of the hotels i found and and much nicer because like the equivalent hotel would have been like a you know motel essentially um <laughs> and so um, but I will say when I was back in New York, I, I don't know, for some of wedding maybe um, earlier this year, I felt like hotel prices were much more reasonable. And I have to believe that at least is in part because of how many Airbnb options there are. And if you take mm. those away, like, are we going to end up back where we were? So, yeah, it is it is complex. I don't I don't know. This is why we need smart people in government. Mm hmm. Yeah, and do we have smart people in government? Unclear. Well, you live in New York, so you should no. go and run. No, that's going to be a no for me. <laughs> it's going to be a no. I think this podcast alone has has uh, foreclosed that. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> Our careers are right. over, over before they right. started. <laughs> um, okay, all right. This next one, this is the last flashback, um, <clears throat> and it is about Adidas. So we've spoken about Adidas um, and their partnership with Kanye West a number of times on the show. Well, recently... And, and the fact that the partnership came to an end. Recently, the Adidas CEO, Bjorn Golden, said on a financial podcast that he doesn't think Ye, formerly known as Kanye West, meant his statements attacking Jews and praising Nazis. He said, I don't think he's a bad person. He just came across that way. 
I just would like to briefly remind people <laughs> of some of what Kanye said. These are direct quotes from an interview he gave. We, again, direct quote, we are not going to be owned by the Jewish media anymore. He continued, every celebrity has Jewish people in their contract. This is not hate speech. This is the truth. This is like such a small inkling of what he said and like, uh, I don't want to say the least offensive, but like, honestly, there was way more offensive stuff that he mm -hmm. said. And this mm -hmm. is obviously extremely offensive. So I just don't know how we can conclude from this because he went on a whole tirade over multiple, like it wasn't just this one right. interview. It was a tirade in this interview. It was a tirade on Twitter. It was a tirade uh, with TMZ. It, like it went on and on. So I'm confused about how we can conclude from that that he didn't mean his statements, his multi-day, right. multi-venue statement. Right. That's confusing to me. And even even if you accepted that as true, like it doesn't matter to me, <laughs> right? Like even if some some of the stuff you said was said out of ignorance, like it's bad enough. It's just bad enough. You mm -hmm. can't be that famous, that influential, saying ignorant shit. You just can't do it. So this, this podcast, like the statement on this podcast are so dumb to me, <laughs> just <laughs> dumb. Yeah. Like well, you already, you know, like why, why are you now saying it's okay? Like y y you already broke off ties, which was right. And Adidas like spokesperson for Adidas is like, that was the right decision. It was the right decision. Like, why are you now saying, oh, he's not that bad? Like, well, and just, I can tell you, I can tell you exactly why, because he goes on, this CEO goes on to say, um, after he says, I don't think he's a bad person, he just came across that way. He continues, and that meant we lost that business, one of the most successful collabs. Mm -hmm. And there you have it. That is the reason why you would like to now rewrite history and make it seem like, oh, he didn't mean what he said, because this did cost you, you know, a billion dollars or whatever this, this collaboration was worth. No one likes losing money. And sure, it would be great if we could start to soft pedal um, our way into being back in business with Kanye West because no. that but, it seemed, but that to me seems like what he must want. Well, that's abominable. We cannot be apologists, you know, like it's unacceptable. And unless there's evidence of Kanye having some kind of education on the persecution of Jews throughout history and time and some kind of remorse, I, even then, it would be really hard for me to accept. <laughs> right. But it's just, it doesn't matter whether he quote unquote meant it or not. Even, even if you accept this conceit, he didn't mean it. It is just as damaging. Right. The ignorance is not an excuse. And honestly, the, given the number of statements he made and like how intense they were, I'm less inclined to even believe it was ignorance. So yeah. it's just not acceptable. Yeah, I completely agree. Not only does it not matter if he didn't mean it, but I just don't know why he's making that assumption when it's not as if Kanye apologized. It's right. not as if Kanye came out and said, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't realize what I was saying. I was speaking from you know, a place of ignorance, and now that I know better, I'm going to do better. He hasn't said any of that. So it is confusing to me that this man has just up out of nowhere you know, said, oh, it's fine. He didn't mean it. He's not a bad person. What evidence are we basing that on? Because it seemed to me, given how emphatically he made these statements, that he did mean it. I, I don't know what else right. we, I, I don't know what else we should conclude. 
unless we're just prepared to say that generally speaking, Kanye doesn't mean what he says. Like, and so, I mean, it's just, I think, I don't know. I think it's ridiculous. And I hope that um, Adidas is not trying to keep that door open for a future collab because he hasn't given any of us any reason to think that he deserves that. Agree. Okay, so in lieu of our main topic, we're diving into several judge and jury segments. KJ, which one are we kicking off with? All right, we are kicking off with an article that came out in The New Yorker about Hassan Minaj, comedian Hassan Minaj. So they released an article this week titled, Hassan Minaj's Emotional Truths. And in the article, journalist Claire Malone reveals that much of his stand-up is based on lies. Now, I do want to point out, I think we all know it's very common for comedians to tell fictional stories in their sets. Generally speaking, when you see a Chris Rock set or an Amy Schumer or Dave Chappelle, you don't think everything that they're saying is true. However, what um, Malone is arguing is that it's different with Hassan Minaj because the nature of his comedy and how he uses these fictional stories is much more, is much less to get a laugh and much more to garner sympathy. So she gives an mm-hmm. example. She actually gives several examples, <clears throat> but one um, of a story where he says a letter was sent to his home filled with white powder. The contents accidentally spilled out onto his younger daughter. The child was rushed to the hospital, and even though it turned out not to be anthrax, it was a really sobering moment for, you know, Menage and realizing that his comedic actions have real-world consequences. Then later that night, according to this story, his wife, in a fury, told him that she was pregnant with their second child and said to him, you get to say whatever you want on stage and we have to live with the consequences. I don't give a shit that Time Magazine thinks you're an influencer. If you ever put my kids in danger again, I will leave you in a second. Now, that's obviously very emotional and also Mm -hmm. completely untrue. So Mm -hmm. Claire Malone's point is, you know, that story clearly was not meant to make us laugh. Right. It was meant to garner sympathy, make us help us understand sort of like Minaj's life and the things that he's going through. It doesn't feel like a lie in the same way. I think that maybe we're used to comedians lying for the setup of a joke. Mm -hmm. And so I would put to you, what do you make of this? What do you think of this? Good judgment, bad judgment. Oh, man. So I, I, I read an op-ed that like is informing my opinion too much. So, um, so I want to share it. So there was a, a New York Times op-ed that came out in response to this article. It was written by Jason Zinneman. Um, and this is the title. Lying in comedy isn't always wrong, but Hassan Minaj crossed a line. Um, and his point is that different comedians essentially have different standards for how much lying or truth is incorporated, but that the most important thing is like kind of what you started out with, how much the audience understands that there are lies, embellishments or not. Mm-hmm. And what he says is that Hassan Minaj in, in his comedy specials, including some in which there are pretty notable lies specifically says to the audience that like, this that this what is happening between me and the audience me being Hassan Minaj like is rooted in truth and because that's not true (laughs) that's when the line gets crossed whereas if you're talking about someone like a Larry David or Jerry Seinfeld who has openly said and that 
even the opinions that they're claiming to have in their comedy are not true. They don't hold them. And you kind of understand that as an audience member because they're so ridiculous, Mm -hmm. you know, then it's okay if they're lies because you know that what's happening is just absurd. What's being discussed is absurd. The other piece, I think, and this is not necessarily in the op-ed, is what's tricky for me is how much of Hassan Minaj's brand, and granted, I haven't seen much of his stand-up. I've mainly seen him when he's, like, filled in on The Daily Show. Mm-hmm. Like, how much of his comedy is not just about getting you to laugh, but is about getting you to, like, reflect on society. You know? It's, like, social commentary, political commentary. Um, and I think that's where it gets a little tricky, right? Because you're leaving the special, not just like, okay, having laughed, but feeling a certain way about people mm-hmm. <laughs> and society functions. And mm-hmm. if those stories that elicited your feelings weren't true, I think that is a little tricky. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 I, <clears throat> I keep thinking though, like, so I think about Amy Schumer. I've seen, almost all mm-hmm. of her specials. I, th- I think I have seen both of Hassan Minaj's um, Netflix specials. And Amy Schumer, you know, she says all sorts of wild things, particularly right. like sexual things. Like she'll tell these yes. like sexual jokes and it's just like, clearly not all of this happened, okay? And, right. we, and I know that and you know that and no one, no one thinks all of it happened, but it's all for the sake of a joke and, and to make us laugh. But we all know that it's not all true. And so I wonder... Is it so bad if, like, what Amy is trying to do is to make us laugh, but what Hassan is trying to do is make us contemplate, right, Mm -hmm. with this story? Like, make us really think about how our actions have consequences, the state of the world, the fact that I am sure he has received death threats. I am sure he has received, maybe he's never had anthrax into his home that spilled on his daughter, but my guess is, given his political commentary, he has had some really nasty things sent to him and said to him. And so if he's embellishing a story in order to make us feel sympathy or sadness or anger or whatever, is that so different from Amy embellishing a story in order to make us laugh? And I and 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 I'm not saying it's not different. I think maybe it is different, but is it but is it so much worse, I guess? You know, mm-hmm. like I guess it seems to me like the problem is that we are all assuming it's true and he, mm-hmm. he and he's presenting it as truth. But I don't know if I think it is necessarily wrong for him to use embellishments to get us to feel something when that is what comedians have been yeah. doing since the end of time. They've just been doing it in the name of humor. And he's doing it in the name of, you know, something, I guess, a bit broader, a bit loftier. Um, but I don't know that I think it's that bad. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. So one of the things that this author says, Jason Zinneman says, is that because um, I think Hassan Minaj has acknowledged that some of his stories are not true and he's called them emotional truths, right? Mm -hmm. And this author in this op-ed likens that to Kellyanne Conway's alternative facts. (laughs) And I think this, this is where I disagree with the author to some extent. He doesn't actually say it's totally analogous, but he does bring it up. Like, is it Mm -hmm. as a question? Is this kind of like Kellyanne Conway's alternative facts? And I think if I were to answer that question, I would say no, precisely because of the point you're raising, which is like, is it so bad? Like, I don't know if it's so bad for Hassan Minaj to create emotional truths in a comedy set. I know it's bad 
for someone who's supposed to be the spokesperson of the White House right. to have alternative <laughs> facts, right, right? right? Like that context is very different and important. Um, so it, I don't think it's clear. Uh, of course, like it would be more amazing if he could if he could have the same result in his comedic routines in terms of both getting people to laugh and getting people to feel a certain way with all truths. Like that would be better. But mm -hmm. that's hard. That's probably hard. That's probably why he's not doing it. <laughs> right, right, right. You know? Yeah. And I think like he's he's built a successful career. So in in that sense, I think at least a part of me feels like this is at least somewhat good judgment, you know, like you've, you've figured out a mix of truth, untruth, comedy, you know, sorrow, whatever politics, and you've shaped it in such a way to make you a compelling figure, a compelling comedian, a compelling host, all of those things. Um, so in some ways it feels like good judgment, but I do wonder now that all of this is coming to light uh, as untruths, you know, like all of the untruths are coming to light. If then, I, I just wonder how people are going to react. Like he's apparently a front mm -hmm. runner to become the next Daily Show host. Is this mm -hmm. now going to take him out of the running? Um, he's hosted, you know, award shows before. Is he now going to be taken out of the running for hosting award shows? Like, I, I just wonder what it's going to do to his broader career. And because because we don't know yet, I guess I'm not prepared to call it bad judgment. Yet. Right. I mean, I definitely think it it does make it harder or he was very good at hosting The Daily Show as a guest, you know, like as a guest host. I think people really liked him, which is why he's in the running. But that show is a news show with comedy, right? Mm -hmm. Like there aren't supposed to be lies there. Um, granted, you have a whole team of writers who are like framing up the news. So hopefully, mm -hmm. you know, he he wouldn't have lies in there but I do think it makes it harder to make that transition mm -hmm. so but we'll see if he gets it yeah yeah all right all right well up next this one is a bit lighter in subject I don't know if you heard about the Drake Halle Berry feud I did <laughs> I did I don't even know if we can really call it a feud, but this is what's happening. So Drake has a new single out called Slime You Out. It's featuring SZA. And the promo art, he decided that for the promo art, he wanted to use an image of Halle Berry being slimed at the 2012 Nickelodeon Kids' Choice Awards. Now, this image is a Getty image. And so Halle Berry does not own the image. Um, and, but he did apparently reach out to her asking like, Hey, would it be okay for me to use this? Well, she said no. And he used it anyway. So she got on her Instagram and basically was like, I have to be the bigger person, but I'm disappointed. He asked me and I said, no, why would you ask if you intend to do whatever the fuck you want to do? That was a fuck you to me. And it's not cool. That's what she put on Instagram and basically, you know, that's, uh, that's how she feels. What, how do you feel about it? Like she didn't own the photo. Drake, Drake, you know, presumably did purchase the photo from Getty. Um, but he did ask her and she said no. So what do you think? Um, two things. The first of which is not the answer to your question. I don't know what I expected Halle Berry's like, um, you know, caption voice to be, or like 
commenter voice to be. This this isn't it. <laughs> I'm just gonna say. <laughs> just an observation. Yeah, look, I think um, this is a great example of when you should know when to ask for forgiveness rather than permission. And Drake messed up. He asked for, for permission when he apparently didn't actually want to observe the answer he got. He should have just asked for forgiveness. Right. Should have just done it. And then if Halle Berry was upset, said, I'm so sorry. But yeah, definitely asking and then ignoring the response is bad judgment. Do I think it's like career ending judgment? No, but like, it's not nice. Yeah. As, as she says, it's not cool. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, that's a great point because I immediately thought of Beyonce. Because you know for Beyonce, her latest album, Renaissance, she samples about 800,000 different artists, beats, songs, lyrics, chords, whatever. Um, and for most of them, um, potentially even for all of them, she only asked the person who owned these things, right? So the example, mm. the example that most comes readily to mind is the Khalees Milkshake sample. Khalees does not own that song. She doesn't own the publishing rights. Do you know who does? Pharrell because Pharrell made that song and he, he mm. owns the rights. So she reached out to Pharrell to ask if she could include the sample. And by the way, it's like the tiniest sample. It's like, you wouldn't even know that there was a sample of milkshake in there. Yeah. I'm trying to think of what song, which song is it's, it? It's, uh, it's in energy. And, oh, and, and, and Beyonce removed it because Khalees came out and caused a ruckus and was like, this isn't women supporting women. And she was all upset about it. Meanwhile, she didn't own it. Right. And so Beyonce mm -hmm. didn't didn't go to Khalees. Beyonce went to the person who owned it, got clearance, added the sample. But because Beyonce was like, I'm not even trying to hear it from you. She removed it and none of us could tell the difference. Right. So, <laughs> <laughs> like literally no one could tell the difference. But to your point, she didn't ask for permission. She didn't go out and tell all these artists, hey, I want to use this thing. Would that be OK with you? She just went out and bought the rights from the people who own them directly. And to me, I just think you can't really falter for that. Like it was a Correct. business, it's a business decision. You don't own the rights. So I'm going to move forward with my business. Um, and I think, yeah, to your point, if Drake had done that, uh, I don't think there'd even really be much to talk about here, but you didn't do that. You like went out of your way to ask and then ignore the answer, which feels rude. Um, mm -hmm. like clearly you're legally, you're fine, but it feels rude. And like, right. Now we all know that you disrespected Halle Berry, which was not a thing that any of us had to know. You know, like, right, right, right. So that, Just like a miscalculation, like you as assumed she would say okay then, but yeah. she didn't. Right. Just, yeah, yeah. Not not great. No, I would I would call it bad judgment and just kind of dumb. <laughs> Agree. <laughs> All right. Up next, we are talking about Bethany Frankel once again. I feel like we can't stop mentioning this woman, but it is because she continues to do some of the most <laughs> outlandish and also kind of newsworthy things. So I don't know how much of this you followed this week, but she decided... As you know, she does beauty reviews, and I assume all of our listeners at this point know she does beauty reviews, so she's always getting sent products. Mm -hmm. Well, she made a TikTok video wherein she said, 
I get sent so much product. I can't use it all. Sometimes, you know, I'll open it, but I'll just open it one time and I'll just like hold it up to see if it looks like it might work for me. And I'll be like, oh, it doesn't work for me. So I'll close it back up. And now I've got all this product that's, you know, it's, it's unused. It's only been open once, but it's unused. And I want to go give it to my friends who work at TJ Maxx because I love TJ Maxx. And every time I'm in there, they're complimenting <laughs> me and they're telling me how beautiful my makeup is and it's expensive stuff. And I, I know they can't afford it. So I want to do something nice and I want to go, I want to give it to my friends at TJ Maxx. Then she films herself going to TJ Maxx. She sees a worker behind the counter. This worker's name is Consuela. How do I know that? Because this is how Bethany af- approaches her. She says, okay, here's my friend. Here's my friend. Again, she's filming herself. Here's my friend. What's your name? And the lady's like, Consuela. She's like, okay, my friend Consuela. Ma'am, if it was your friend, wouldn't you know her name? But anyway, <laughs> and Consuela at this point looks shocked and confused, okay, and alarmed because Bethany's rolling up on her. <laughs> <laughs> and Bethany comes with all this stuff, and she's like, I have so much stuff. I have so much makeup. I want, I'm going to give it to you, and then you can give it to all your other friends, but I just want to give it to you because you guys are so great. And the woman's like, um, I'm not allowed to accept this. Like, we're not allowed to take tips or, or gifts or anything. And Bethany's like, what? Oh, my God, no. She's like, don't worry. I'll talk to TJ Maxx. I will DM TJ Maxx and it'll be okay. So you oh just, you just go ahead and take it and like shoves this stuff into this woman's arms. Right now, of course there's immediate backlash because so many things have happened in this video. Okay. Number one, you are giving away opened product. And once it's opened, it's essentially used. Okay. You cannot, you can't give people opened used cosmetics right so that's problem number one i wouldn't i wouldn't even give that to like a close friend much less a stranger okay yeah you've opened the product two you're going on and on about how these people are your friends but you don't know their names three this woman has said very clearly to you i can't accept this but you've shoved it on her anyway and four you've tried to pretend as if like you have what the direct line to the ceo of tj maxx and you're just gonna (laughs) dm him and, and get an okay so of course this video sparked a bunch of response videos because everyone's like what in the white savior complex is this okay it's just everyone is like this is crazy and then bethany makes a response video she makes several about how like oh people are calling me a white savior complex but that's racist because like i'm not that and she's just like so if you want to cancel me go ahead and cancel me because i like to give things away i don't waste anything blah 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 basically it is you think it's good judgment (laughs) (laughs) it is so confusing i don't know what what are your thoughts what are your thoughts on this (laughs) oh i don't know bethany i think where she i mean there are a number of things that are wrong as you pointed out i feel like where she really gets it wrong is just that she can't do anything privately it seems like Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know like Mm -hmm. Why are you filming yourself doing this? I don't get it. Like, if you, even if we could get over, I agree the open product thing is very strange. Like, the only time I would ever give an open concealer or whatever, which I think is, like, one of the examples Mm -hmm. to anyone, is, like, if it's to my sister and I would tell her, I opened this and I tried it and it doesn't fit. Do you want it? And by the way, she might be like, no. (laughs) I'm like, okay. (laughs) But I'm not like going to donate it to someone. Yeah, it's open. You can't. You can't do that. You know? You cannot. But so even if we could get over that, like if you think you're doing a nice thing, even if someone else might think like, oh, actually, you know, you're putting them in a compromising position because they can't accept gifts, whatever. Just do the nice thing. Don't film yourself doing the nice thing. Right. But I think, but then actually let me 
is she just doing all this because she knows it's actually controversial and she knows that then she can create five more videos on top of it? Like, is this some like mastermind type thing? Maybe. And I mean, that is one way in which you could say it's good judgment because it certainly has spawned a lot of other videos. It spawned a lot of controversy, right. controversy. It's fun. A lot of videos from her, a lot of videos from other people, a lot of media articles. Like if you Google this right now, everyone's written an article about it. And that to me would be how you could define this as good judgment. Like it is something yeah. that a lot of people are talking about. And if Bethany's goal is just to keep her name in these streets. Which it is. She's, she said, she's like, love me, hate me. I, I'm so grateful that you're just talking about me essentially. Right? right? Like she just. Like wants, she's definitely wants... like an all press is good press type mentality mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and so if that is really what she believes then from that perspective then maybe I could call this good judgment I just am so like grossed out by the idea <laughs> of thinking that because this is the other thing like someone in her comments wrote <clears throat> like but why assume that Consuela can't afford to buy this makeup and Bethany responded because she works at TJ Maxx mm. And I don't know, that really like made me angry because one, don't be in people's pockets, okay? Don't be out here counting my coins. You don't, you don't know me. You don't know what I can and can't afford. And to be making that assumption just feels so elitist. Like if you mm. want to donate something nice to someone, donate something nice to someone, but don't then on top of it, like make all these assumptions about like what they can and can't afford. First of all, some of the products she, were, she was gifting was like Pixie, okay? Pixie products are not expensive, all right? Like they are very affordable. Um, and even the more expensive things, like people treat themselves all the time. So to me, it almost felt like a, like a dig, like, oh, you can't afford this. So I'm going to, I don't know. I just, I really didn't like that. Don't say, do a nice thing, donate a nice thing without making an assumption about someone that, that felt icky to me. Um, and I also just like, cause when someone, it was actually Carol, Carol Radswell who called her, mm. uh, who, who, who said the phrase white savior complex. And Bethany goes in response to that. She's like, um, I didn't, I didn't even know what that means. Ma'am, use some context clues. Okay. Like it's not like the that, hardest. But how well, do you not know what that means this in is, 2023? Well, first of what? all, yes. One, you should have heard it by now because it's 2023, but let's pretend you've never heard that phrase before. Couldn't the, the three words themselves <laughs> <laughs> help you understand what it means? Right. Like, it's not, it's not rocket science. Like, essentially, you think, like, your whiteness and your privilege has put you on a pedestal in your mind, and you now feel as though you need to go save the world and the Consuelas of the world by giving right. them Patrick Ta eyeshadow palettes. Like what, like it's just, it's, it's so nonsensical that she's pretending like she doesn't know what it means. Yes, you do know what it means. You're just, it, it, you're, it just feels ridiculous, but like, yeah, I mean, if it's all for engagement and it's all for views, okay, maybe, maybe good judgment. I don't know. Oh, We'll never stop talking about this woman, right. which is what she wants, because I think she just like it. Part of why I think we talk about her so much is because there is a mix. It's not all bad. There is some good there, 
but there's also a lot of bad. And she just continues to have this like weird mix within her and all of her actions. <laughs> yeah, I I don't know if we'll stop talking about her either. And I think this is exactly why she started her YouTube channel. Mm -hmm. um, because she realized like, okay, when my videos blow up on TikTok, yeah, I get a bunch of views, but like, I'm not getting paid anything mm. just for those views. Whereas on YouTube, you do get paid for views. Like, so I think that's why she started her channel because she's realized like, I am really good at getting people to talk about me and engage with me, even if they hate me. So mm -hmm. I should be directing people to a place where I can get paid for that. And, and so maybe she is, I have never hopped over to her YouTube to there, there right. continue the conversation about something controversial she said, but maybe her audience is doing that. Yeah. Um, I did get served a teaser for a longer video of her doing stand, trying stand up. And I can assure you that is not a video I will watch because I'm positive it will be horrible. Oh, my God. Oh, I did not see that. Ooh, I don't want yeah. to see that. <laughs> yeah. There's no way it's good. If, yeah. like, the rants on her podcast are any indication, it would be awful. Yeah. <laughs> Oof. All right. Um, okay. Well, we've got one more, and this one pertains to OpenAI, which, as a reminder, is the parent company of ChatGPT. Well, according to a recent Deadline article, John Grisham, George R.R. R. Martin, and other famous authors have joined the Authors Guild in a class action lawsuit against OpenAI. Now, they filed this class action lawsuit on Wednesday, claiming that the technology is infringing on their works. In the complaint, the authors claim that OpenAI copied their works wholesale without permission or consideration. The plaintiffs contend that the company fed their works into large language models, algorithms designed to output human-seeming text responses, responses to users' prompts and queries. And basically, they don't like that. So <laughs> <laughs> what is your take on this? Would you call this good or bad judgment on behalf of the authors? Oh, I think it's great judgment. Uh, I don't, I really don't know enough about copyright. I didn't even take a copyright class in law school. So to, <laughs> like, I, I don't know enough about it, but from a lay perspective, so I'm not going to answer this from like a lawyer's perspective, from a lay perspective, I think they're, these are the exact people you want to bring a case like this because they can afford it. You know, like I think this will get litigated all the way. Mm -hmm. I don't know how obvious like the law is on this matter like whether it's like a slam dunk case for them or not but I think it's like this is one of the big questions that we have about AI technology it's obviously one of the big things that the Writers Guild cares about right now in their strike for example um, and so I think it'll be really interesting what the outcome is like if it what's so interesting to me that was like I don't think you can untrain those models right <laughs> right 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 yeah um, and so how do you then calculate damages, right? Because it it will be a persistent violation, right? Yeah. Well, and that's my, my question is like, I agree, good judgment on them for bringing the lawsuit. The more interesting question to me though is like, what the hell's gonna happen? Because mm -hmm. I, one, I think you're right. You can't, you can't untrain the model. Like once the words are in there, you can't take them back. <clears throat> right. And two... I don't even know 
It's my understanding the way these large language models have worked up until now is that they are literally just scraping the internet for all available data. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. to the extent that John Grisham's books are available on the internet in some sort of like free capacity, yes, the open AI and these other AI chatbots are scraping the internet and getting it. But I don't think anyone went out and like purchased all 80 of John Grisham's books and typed them into a computer in order to train the computer. I don't think that that is mm -hmm. what happened. And so if, if this lawsuit is successful and the court says, okay, yes, you can't scoop up authors works without their express permission. But, but this, you know, language model is just, crawling the internet and scooping up data how do we make sure it's not scooping up the wrong data like the copy right. the, the data that's copyrighted right like right. i just i mean that's obviously a question for people smarter than me or who know more about this than me but it's it's just it's my understanding that no one is actually feeding books into these models i don't think that that is yeah. what's happening um so i i imagine that if the lawsuit is successful, there will be some damages paid out. But the real question is like, what do you do for the future? Yeah. I'm also now remembering there is this concept, which I think is like very basic in copyright of a derivative work, mm -hmm. which basically it's a work that includes like major elements of an original copyrighted work. Mm -hmm. But the whole concept of a derivative work is that it tr it transforms or modifies or adapts the original work enough such that in it in and of itself becomes a separate independent copyrightable work. Mm -hmm. um, and I ha and I have to wonder, like there probably are I think there are tools out there already like that will basically look at a response from ChatGPT or one of these models and set and like give a per percentage like translated tr percentage transformed you know mm -hmm. like or like how are we going to be able to discern whether a work that's produced by one of these models like is sufficiently transformed or not like maybe this is maybe the, maybe they'll lose this case I don't I don't know so interesting it's so interesting I mean it's it's clear to me that, and, and Sam Altman, the president of OpenAI, has been argue, arguing for more regulation um, for AI in general. Like he has been in DC talking to mm -hmm. Congress people saying like, we have got to get more regulation around this thing because it's, this thing is going to run away from us. It basically has already run away from us. Like we are trying, we're paying catch up here. Right. right? <laughs> um, and so I don't even know if he would be all that opposed to the idea that like, no, I don't think so. Yeah, they've they've got to do a better job of, you know, attributing these works and paying for these works. Like, but also, it does feel like AI has run away from us a bit. Like, I mean, if it's literally just crawling the internet, anyone can put up an ebook of a John Grisham novel, right? And so, I don't. How do you even put guardrails around that? I really. I don't know. I hope some. Yeah, it's almost like you need to create a more defined set of inputs. You know, like it can't just be the internet. Right. <laughs> Somehow it's got to be a closed universe. But then it would probably be far less powerful. Well, yeah, because the whole way it gets better is by scooping up more. Right. The more data it has. The more data. So interesting. Definitely good judgment on the part of uh, on the part of these plaintiffs. Well, I mean, they might not be resolved in their favor but i but as just a member of society i think 
similar to what you're saying about Sam Altman, just being able to have some more certainty around these areas will be a good outcome. Yeah, agreed. All right, guys, that's it for this week. As always, we hope you are loving the show. And if you are, please be sure to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. And be sure to follow us on social. I'm Danny underscore D underscore MC on TikTok. And KJ is I am underscore KJ Miller. And subscribe to us on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash N-A-B-P. 